Hello, welcome to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. My name is Andrew Robinson, and today is January 11th, 2022. Today's podcast is focused on geopolitical risks and concerns for the upcoming year. This follows our recent Around the World piece published earlier this month. Today, our podcast features Major General James Spider Marks, Peter Chur, and Rachel Washburn. I'll hand it over to her. General Marks and Peter Chur, Happy New Year. Great to be back with you both as we discuss our potential surprises for 2022. This podcast today is going to be essentially a follow-up to our December Around the World where we discussed some of the potential geopolitical concerns and surprises in the new year. Want to give you both an opportunity to dive deeper into the topics that we discussed in December and also give you an opportunity to discuss maybe some things that have changed in the last three or four weeks, whether that be Kazakhstan or new cyber risk or any sort of risk around the Olympics. General Marks, want to start off with you. As we start the new year, how do you view the state of geopolitics? How do you view the globe? And what is top of mind for you? Oh, perfect. Well, thanks, Rachel and Peter. Happy New Year. Great to see both you guys. Um, <clears throat> in rapid fire, let me let me tell you what I think we're going to see not only immediately over the horizon, but down the road as we go through 2022. Um, with the mission of trying to provide some pr- surprises, I'm not sanguine that I'll touch on some things that are surprising, but I think it's important that we not avoid the principal targets that are going to be out there that we need to think about. Clearly, China, I'm concerned about China's military, its purported modernization. They want to be a connected military by 2027. They want to be a fully modernized military by 2035. And by 2049, no surprise, the 100th anniversary of um, the People's Republic, they want to be a world-class military. So, Let's look at what's happening with the Chinese military over the course of this year. You can't do that without looking at Taiwan and the provocations that they've been making against Taiwan. What I think is going to be surprising is that many look at what's happening in Taiwan and think it's going to happen immediately. China is going to turn the corner and going to kinetically force Taiwan into a corner of some sort. That won't happen. They'll continue to embrace the strategy of death by a thousand cuts. So I think we'll see provocations, but nothing that's going to push China to invade or really get Taiwan to be provocative on their end and force a decision on the part of Taipei, Beijing, and clearly the United States. Russia, Russia, Ukraine, I think the invasion of Ukraine is is inevitable, but it's not an invasion that's going to Kiev. It's an invasion that's going to occupy and acknowledge what exists right now in the Donbass is Russian presence, um, Russian interest, not unlike what happened in Crimea in 2014. The difference being in Crimea in 2014, it was done elegantly. It was the application of hard power through a soft introduction. Really quite phenomenal. We've studied that. Um, what we're going to see now is the buildup, continued buildup of forces, and I think there will be a Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, that'll take place probably in the first three months of this new year. Mideast, North Africa. Certainly we're concerned about Iran, nuclearization, what's going to happen with the JICPOA, are we going to, will the United States get back into the nuke deal with Iran, and what are the conditions of that? 
clearly Iran has said, yeah, we'd love to have the United States back in, but you got to reduce sanctions. That is bad news for the United States if they tend to or they move in the direction of trying to embrace that. We've done that before. We've seen what that what happens. We need to be very, very delicate about this, because as Iran increases its case cap- capabilities and decreases the alert warning, the threshold over which they can go from peaceful uses to military uses of the enriched uranium, that time decreases that solution would then go into the hands of the Israelis or even the um, the um, the Saudis. We're not sure. And the United States has to be very, very walk that line very delicately, but very precisely. Certainly, you can't talk about Asia without talking about China. Uh, U.S. presence in Southeast Asia is absolutely important. The Quad is increasingly important. India, Japan, Australia and the United States There are other nations that might want to participate. I would see this becoming the Quad Plus moving forward in 2022, clearly designed at trying to alter Chinese behavior in that part of the world. And you can't talk about NATO without talking about Russia. Russia Russia wants to continue to divide NATO. They'll be successful at that if we don't stand up and say, look, you cannot be provocative like you are right now. NATO has indicated that they're willing to support support the United States initiative. So United States is in a position to reassert itself as a lead in this particular part of the world. Back to you. Thanks, Spider. So that essentially when you're looking at the globe, you're primarily focused on China, Southeast Asia, Russia as it relates to NATO, and of course, MENA and Iran being a huge provocative element of that. Peter, do you see the world the same way? Is there anything that is on your radar that you think is is being overlooked or missed that could have uh, broader macro implications, maybe not specifically to security? Yeah, I, I think Spider covered an immense amount of ground, which is awesome. And some of the things we see similar, I think a little bit differently. One thing I want to highlight to me in China, I really see this as the end of an era. And I'm almost looking at it that the Summer Olympics was China's coming out party, where they really embraced the world, global economy and everything like that. And that this is going to be a little bit their going away party. So there's a symbolic element to it. I think that is very realistic. It's impacting markets. It's impacting what they do with us. It's impacting us from a capital standpoint. Um, I get a lot more questions about the demographics of China and what it means that they have such a young and male oriented population, if that increases their willingness to do something military. So that I think we're 100%, 100% spot on um, looking at. And then I think the rest of the world, I'm framing a little bit more in this chase or competition for rare earths and strategic minerals. So again, we hit a lot of the same areas. I think North Africa is probably one of the areas that's more underlooked. I want to go back even what's going on with Afghanistan as China tries to extract rare earths and critical minerals from there. So we wind up looking at a lot of the same regions and areas, I think just coming at it from a different lens and what could impact markets. And clearly what's going on with Ukraine is all about oil, European oil, what that does to their drive towards sustainability. So there's a lot of you know overlap and you know interesting things going on. And we haven't talked as much, and we used to talk a fair bit about it, but you're looking at what's going on in Turkey. And Turkey is kind of that fulcrum for East meets West. They are fairly important in global capital markets. So that's another area that I'm probably a little bit more focused on right now. Hey, let me jump on this because, you know, the other thing that we haven't talked about um, by our own admission is there are so many 
important issues around the globe, and it's how you effectively rack and stack those in terms of prioritization of effort and elements of power. And we haven't mentioned India in, in deep regards, you know, increasing the United States relationship in India, incredibly talented workforce, largest population in the world, second to China. I mean, it's just a, a phenomenal and a democracy. India, Indonesia, and the United States, top three democracies in the world in terms of population. We haven't mentioned them yet. Uh, the other thing, we're looking at South America. We haven't talked about South America, and I think the challenge with South America is that it's got incredible oil and gas resources. Oil and gas is now a pariah in terms of the administration. We've got a, we're migrating <laughs> electric and alternative means of power. So maybe we're going to move away from a focus on South America, uh, which would be incredibly unfortunate, unfortunate. but the, um, what we do have, you know, anything of the Southern Hemisphere, the only focus that we're really talking about is Australia, right? We really need to be looking at South America and our, and our presence and influence, the presence of our influence in that part of the world. Well, Spider, I'm going to take a quick contrarian thing and just mention that I've actually been adding South American stocks and Mexican stocks to my recommended list because I do think they're actually going to become a really important part of what we need to be doing, whether the administration catches on or not. I think they will. But ultimately, as we start looking at repatriating businesses and changing our supply chains and again, looking for these rare earths and critical minerals, we should re-up what we're doing with South America, Latin America, Central America. So that's actually a big part of my thesis going into this year is that we're actually going to embrace them, do it right. And that's going to be a huge opportunity for investors in those areas. Boy, I, I would hope so. And what we what we routinely see, Peter, is, you know, what what leads to can this administration lead and get ahead of issues and move issues in a particular direction? Or will the administration <coughs> respond to what the market is doing? And we see that all over the all over the globe. And I think what you're saying is the market's going to move our attention in a certain area and we're going to find a confluence of national interests as well as market interests in that part of the world. I like it. And certainly South America and Central America offers an opportunity for that. Peter makes a really interesting point, especially when it comes to the repatriation, at least into our hemisphere of our supply chain. Um, and that's one of the verticals I definitely want to dive into. But South and Central America is seeing a great competition for um, with regard to China. We're seeing day by day, week by week, different countries no longer aligning themselves and acknowledging Taiwan as a separate entity, aligning themselves with China. You're seeing massive, massive investments in South and Central America by China. So certainly in the not too distant future, there will be a, a confluence of national interests as well as um, market interests, as Peter imagined. I think that the that is certainly on the horizon. Yeah, Rachel, I think you're, again, catching it right there with uh, Venezuela, for example, right? There's an area where we wanted a regime change. We kind of wanted to see the leadership done. Two, three years later, it's still there. And you've got Russian influence, you've got China influence, you actually have India replicating some of China's efforts in terms of securing resources. So Venezuela has been this little microcosm of geopolitics playing out. And unfortunately, from my perspective, we have not got the results that we've been looking for. So Europe and the West as a whole aren't getting it in Venezuela. So hopefully that's something we can start changing and making sure we're actually doing a better job and getting the results we want that probably makes sense for the citizens of those countries on top of it. You know, and we also look at 
I, I think the emergence, maybe it's not an emergence, maybe it's been in place for years, but we don't really talk about it that aggressively, is these micro policies that exist. Just take South America, for example, where we have incredibly disparate interests in different countries within a holistic region. So we can't necessarily talk about regional influence and the thrust within a particular region. You've got Venezuela and Brazil moving in entirely different directions. Both have incredible capabilities and resources that are valuable globally. You take other parts of the world as well, and you realize you take Europe, take NATO. France and Germany are moving in incredibly different directions in terms of power generation. France is building nuclear power <clears throat> to provide commercial necessary um, um, infrastructure, and Germany's walking away from it, scuttling the program. So you have within NATO these incredibly different views that are become very vitriolic. These become religion. These become theological discussions, and there's no halfway point in terms of theology. And so we're going to have incredibly disparate views that have to be reconciled within a regional perspective. That takes a lot of art as opposed to science in our diplomatic in terms of the overall application of those elements of power, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic, you have to use those resources very precisely um, and defined well in advance before you engage. I think that's a very important point, Spider or General Marks. And I definitely want to, we touched on it a little bit, but I want to, based off those regions that we've just highlighted that are going to remain top of mind and of concern for U.S. interests, want to dive deeper into the different verticals that are making those dynamics so challenging, whether that be supply chain issues, whether that be cyber threats and cyber risk, and the new and renewed focus on sustainability and ESG elements. That absolutely plays into this. Um, Peter, maybe hand it over to you first how you see the world in those particularly high-risk areas through the lens of cyber supply chain and sustainability? Wow, it's a lot to think about. I'd almost add, and I hate to even add to it, it's already a complex topic. Cyber and space to me are sort of going hand in hand a little bit, that those are kind of these new frontiers that we are having to deal with. And again, I think some of our enemies are ahead of us in terms of how they are looking at those areas in terms of the competition, in terms of you know, resources, in terms of control, in terms of what falls into the military side of things. So I'm definitely very concerned about cyber, whether we will see some sort of action taken really with an intent to cause some sort of physical damage. I think last year was one of the first years we saw a lot of events, um, whether it was pipelines or food, where you really saw some of this digital risk transformed to physical risk, right? So a hack led to lack of, or shortages of gasoline, a hack led to shortages of food. And I think that unfortunately is something that we've got to be prepared for and think about in this coming year is that that's probably a trend that's going to continue where nefarious acts do turn into physical and it's not just some simple ransomware or anything like that. So I'm very concerned on that front. I think that's going to be a part that we have to you know pull together. We probably nationally need to figure out what our real deterrent strategy is. So I think we're going to see a lot of evolution in that. And it's with a particular focus on cyber and a little bit towards space. And then across all of this, I, you know, we've been saying this sadly for almost two years, I think, is that we have this vision of where we want to be in terms of sustainability and what the planet should look like. 
And I don't think we have a very solid and well thought out plan to get there. And China, on the other hand, I don't think has a particularly strong vision of what they want the world or global you know, health to be. But they have a very strong plan on securing all the resources they think we might need. So that's, that's going to be all these challenges. And I just see a world in you know, a year or two years where all the interests really are surrounded around all these rarest critical minerals, around cyber. And when every discussion 20 years ago was around oil, petrochemicals, petrodollars, it's, that's going to be irrelevant. It's going to be these other things. And we're not making that transition, I think, fast enough to be as competitive and safe as we need to be. So that to me is a concern and a real risk. And it's a hard one to talk about because it's unclear how to protect ourselves more than we're already doing. But that's something that's really you know, high in my mind is how we win this and how we protect ourselves. You, you know, Peter, um, you make two really, two really good points on that. First of all, the comment on uh, cyber, the challenge with the proliferation of, of cyber engagement and having a really deleterious effect in terms of behaviors. Um, what we're going to see is the real desire on the part of industry and individual organizations to respond offensively. Um, that's, a, that's a real problem. Not only do we have to increase deterrence, but what we can ill afford is to have various organizations, you know, the IBMs of the world or oil companies or the Exxons of the world or fill in the blank, Respond to, responding to cyber engagement and hacking activity individually on their own in terms of offensive operations. That would be incredibly dangerous. That would be an escalatory move that would be without any type of controls. Very, very concerning. And then the second thing, the way you describe China, what really comes to mind, the picture that comes to my mind is China's walk is in Wegmans. China walks into Wegmans and they're walking down the baking aisle and they're buying up all these baking goods and they get out and they pay for them. They have no clue what they're making. Are they making a cake? Are they making uh, are they additive for some great fish meal? Are they putting salad together? They have no freaking clue. But they've got all these great cap got these great resources that they've gobbled up. But as you've described, what's the vision for all of that? Well, the short answer is when you have the resources, you can then build your vision subsequently. You don't necessarily start need to start with that desired end state. It's always best. I mean, President Lyndon Johnson was great. He said, I don't care. About, I don't care about a strategic policy. Give me a budget and I'll tell you what my policy looks like. Well, in this case, I got a bunch of resources. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with them, but watch me. It, you know, it puts everybody in the defense on the defensive, right? Yeah, I like that a lot, Spider. And kind of coming back to that analogy about this is really the end of an era in China. They're shifting. Rachel and I have talked about this before. I also kind of view like China's been out there fishing for the last 20 some odd years. They've been dragging this huge net across the globe, catching all sorts of things. And now they're pulling that net in and they're going to figure out what they have and how they want to use it. And that's almost the situation that I see. They're just kind of pulling all this in and, hey, what have we collected? What do we have? Where are our friends? Where are our allies? What do we do from here? And, you know, this is going to sound strange and it's be at the high end of surprise. It probably turned out to be wrong. But there's a part of me that thinks they might want to engineer some sort of act ahead of the Olympics so they can say, hey, you come to our Olympics if you like us and our friends, and don't bother if you're not. And I don't think that happens, but there's a part of me that thinks they would like that, where they want to identify and make people say, yes, China, we are with you or against you, as they figure out where they're headed for the next 10 to 20 years. Peter, are you suggesting that China might instigate an event, resolve the event, and say, look, we're, 
we're we're still in control. We're in charge. We can handle crises as they pop up, but they limit the potential negative outcomes because they've created it. Um, is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I again, it, it's it's definitely a little bit out there, but you see again, we talked before, right? They have this young male population. They have this military they've built up that's untested. Do they want to do something out there? That's provocative. That gets them something that they want and puts everyone on edge and and really forces people's hands. Right? Are they comfortable that we wouldn't react to something? And maybe Taiwan. Maybe it won't be a Taiwan, but maybe something in some other region. Again, they've been very active in the South Sea, and we've let it happen st- time and time again. So I could see them trying to do something where they really start forcing the issue, and people have to decide what side of the fence they're on. You know, to your thesis. Um there, was a, there are always, in simplistic terms, there are always two audiences, right? You got an internal and an external audience. And what you're describing is the internal audience will respond to that very positively because that's what she is trying to do. And it would, in fact, bolster what she is trying to do, which is, look, guys, we may have gone too far afield. We've got to get back to the core elements of the Communist Party, which means we're in control. We're trying to do the best we can here. We're on another long march. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. Oh, watch it. Watch what just happened. Oh, we just solved this problem. See, this is a good strategy. I, yeah, I don't think that's too far afield. They'd have to control it in a way not to scare the external audience. But if the intent is to bolster the internal internal audience, have at it. You might achieve that goal. Achieve that goal. I, I like that a lot. And to me, the one question that I think there's a risk that we're very complacent about is a lot of people I think still believe that China really wants access to Western capital. That China really wants their ability to fund their companies with U.S. dollars or Western European dollars. And if that premise is incorrect, where China is quite willing to go it alone or with their, whether you want to call them allies or client states, I I think that would have a dramatic shock to our system and would be a huge slap in the face that, once again, we, we haven't understood properly what China's thinking. And too often we do this, as we've talked about before, mirroring ourselves in China when China's goals and thought process and long-term agenda don't necessarily match ours at all. Well, they don't. They, they don't. Hey, can I can I pivot to something? You know, we, we haven't talked about space, competition in space, and we haven't talked about nukes. Um, you know, we've got an arrangement. We eliminated our arrangement, at least the Trump administration eliminated our <coughs> arrangement with Russia <coughs> in terms of nuke development, number of nukes, et cetera. I think we're at a point now where we have to acknowledge that China, well, China has acknowledged that they want to expand their nuclear capability and have a thousand weaponized nukes uh, within about 10 years. Um, that's incredibly provocative and a concern. Um, and and our relationship, and we're trying to reestablish our relationship with Russia vis-a-vis nukes and the modernization of our own nuclear fleet. Um, I think that needs to be held out there because that's that's a competitive grounds uh, landscape right i mean the, the saudis are going to end up with a nuke if the iraq if the iranians end up with a nuke that is a horrible potential outcome i'm sanguine the iranians won't end up with a nuke but we need to figure out what that looks like but the other thing is competition in space uh, at least we have space as a regulatory regulated um, domain of war but the amount of presence in space is quite significant the Russians just recently blew some stuff up in space. How did that affect the International Space Station? You've got 
um, you know, space debris flying around, incredibly dangerous. Um, so I, what, I mean, I think it's important that we at least hang that out there as topics that could be surprises during 2022 that could go either way. And I think they could break in the good side, which means we're going to start addressing these protocols. We're going to get much more aggressive about it. We're going to have some announcements a priori before spatial events occur and what the desired outcomes are of those spatial events. In other words, we've got to pull the veil away from clearly what is some activity in space that is not transparent. Um, but it could also break the other way where we just have some incredible disaster. Um, and, and how do we position ourselves to mitigate against that? I have a question around the nuclear threat. What does that look like in the 21st century? Is it going to be, obviously, you know, three or four years ago, there was a lot of concerns around how antagonistic and provocative North Korea was around developing their missile programs and their nuclear program. Does the threat look like it did in the 20th century? Is it going to be a nation state attacking another nation state with a nuclear weapon or is it is that there are more nuance to it now? What like if there is a surprise in the the realm of nuclear capability in 2022 or in the near future, what do you think it would look like? Well, I, I tell you, um, great question, R- really good question, because not only we've got nine nations that have nukes and the big five, uh, which is a Security Council in the, in the United Nations, all have nukes, militarized nukes. Right. Um However, within each of those nations, what elements exist where there might be some um, what we would describe as a terrorist activity that could take those capabilities and end up with uh, an accident? Whether you describe whether it's a legitimate accident, whatever the intent is, it's irrelevant, right? If you've got nukes involved, whether it was an accident of you know a commission or omission, we've got a legitimate major league problem that cries for increased control, you know, elimination of nukes. The world's a safer place without nukes, but we created this incredibly wealthy, vibrant world, and we had nukes the entire time. Is it because of those nukes, or was it the fear of those nukes, and we decided we had to get along? Many, I mean, there are volumes written about that thesis that support it. Um, so, So I think it is probably nuanced because of the internal challenges that we have uh, within each one of these nations in pockets where they're defining their interests beyond the desires of that nation state. I mean, the non, non-state non actors have always been a problem. They are now increasing in number. And I think that's what we're seeing. And that's the nuance, Rachel, to your question, is that in that within these nuclear states and within the nuclear capability, is there the possibility that there could be a rogue um, event? And I would say yes. Peter, do you see this risk being addressed or acknowledged in, in your world at all? No, I think it's something that people have put to the side and it seems so remote. And as you say, how would it actually play out that that would be <clears throat> incredibly disruptive if something were to happen? Um, it, but it's not something I think people spend a lot of time thinking about, partly because it is so out of our control. And that's one of the issues, I guess we look at whether it's space, cyber, these giant issues that feel so far out of people's control, they probably get pushed aside a little bit just because it's too hard to think about. And there's no obvious solution. It doesn't feel like the sort of thing, well, if I just work a little bit harder, spend a little bit more money, I can make this safe. 
it feels a little bit like you're just digging into a bottomless pit. And I think because of that, the risk is not priced in and it's real. And, you know, it's something I think we're going to wind up though having to be very reactionary. And if something were to happen, it reminds me a little bit of when um, Iran attacked our base in Iraq, where we were able to pull together our knowledge base and direct clients and help clients work through what the risks were and de-escalate that situation and tell our clients why we thought it would de-escalate. So I think it's the sort of thing that it's very difficult to prepare for, but hopefully if and when that time comes, we are well prepared to navigate it, understand how risky it is, what the likely consequences are, and that will be, I think, what determines how we deal with that or how successful we're viewed as dealing with it. You know, it's almost like, again, the image that comes to mind, it's like you have blind, <coughs> angry, pissed off pit bulls that are being tied down by this thick chain. And periodically you check to make sure that chain's squared away and that, that pit bull's not going to come attack you. Um, so you you go about, your, in other words, you reach the point where you periodically check it, but you mostly just acknowledge you've got this crazy ravenous pit bull down the street and I don't have to worry about him. But the second I have to worry about him, it's cataclysmic. It's going to rip my head off, you know, et cetera. So we've got that in the world today, but you don't. I, I think you're right, Peter. How do you price that in? You, you don't. You just cross your fingers. That's where you legitimately say, I hope that chain was put it put together well. I hope the collar is not going to slip. And I hope the stake that's in the ground is not going to break as well. And you end up with this pit bull ripping your face off. Um, but that's it. It's your crossing your finger that somebody did their job effectively. Because a big concern that I have is, you know, India and Pakistan, as a matter of routine, are shooting at each other. I mean, they're in, in a constant, continual state of conflict of one sort of another. And it's been tamped down. And both of those nations understand we've got nukes. So we can define and acknowledge that this type of competition is okay, because if it gets out of hand, it could be end of time. So we can't allow that to happen. Peter, did you have anything else to say on that? No, I think the only thing I can say is that, uh, you know, we talked about a bunch of things. One is it's always hard to figure out what the timing is going to be. I remember when we were talking about Turkey and the, you specifically were very upset that they were buying Soviet missile systems. And now... Two years later, their economy is starting to have a lot of issues. They're having currencies. So some of these things take time. And the other thing is, there's, despite the fact that we've covered 100 subjects, and I'm in some ways even more confused than when we started, um, it's probably going to be something that we haven't even discussed that occurred, right? No one really discussed seriously pandemics or anything like that two years ago. And that's what shook the whole world for the past two years. So I think you know part of this, it's a great exercise to go through, look at all these four instances, play with them. What would you do? And that means you're just going to be better prepared and better able to react if and when something does happen, regardless of something we've actually discussed or it's something else. This thought exercise to me and thinking through it about, are you prepared? What would your company do? What would your positioning do? What would you do? They're great, great exercises and they're worthwhile because you will respond better if and when you have to respond. Here we are. And um, I was writing down the things we didn't talk about in significant detail. I mean, we may have mentioned them in passing, but we really didn't get in <coughs> North Korea. We really didn't talk about our relationship with Japan or with the Republic of Korea. We didn't talk about terrorism. We only mentioned just briefly, Peter, thank you, our relationship, touch and go relationship with Turkey and its relevance in NATO. We really didn't talk about the pandemic, which has defined our lives for 24 months. Think about that. Is democracy at risk? I mean, that pops up all the time. You know, do you, do you believe what you hear about the fragility of democracy in a legitimate way? 
And, and so I would say that those discussions now are normalized and, and you have to be concerned about complacency. When something becomes normalized, it's like breathing air. Um, we got to be careful about the air we breathe. You may be choking at some point. We need to, we need to, in other words, we did talk about a lot of things. We need to routinely surface these topics and see where we are. We need to pulse where we are. We need to do an, more than an annual check. We, we need to have somebody checking us out as a matter of routine to make sure that this globe that we're a part of is not spinning off its axis. And in many cases, we don't even want to talk about it because it's become normalized. So, Rachel, that was, I'm really thinking about two things here. And they're kind of the same in that I believe we are not very good at seeing the ends of eras or starting of new eras. And that's where we make mistakes because we tend to extrapolate past performance, past actions into the future. And when you get these sea changes, that's when you make mistakes and missing those is what has often caused problems. So I think we are in the middle of the end of one era, which really is the globalization of China, the impact that had as they pull together, I think it's going to change. And a lot of relationships that we've witnessed over the last 10, 20 years, whether it's the deflationary pressures from them, how we deal with our you know, allies, how they deal with their allies, that has changed. And we have to be thinking about that new. And at the other end, I think something that's really just beginning is this era of sustainability, where we are pushing to create a sustainable environment. I think that is going to be very inflationary because we have to build out to get those things. We have to make sure we secure the resources to do that. At the same time, we have to make sure that we are um, you know, supporting our existing infrastructure so we don't have problems like Europe's going through right now. And I think it's going to create new jobs. There's whole new industries around carbon capture, carbon credits that are evolving from this. I think space is part of what I would include as a critical part of the sustainability. So I think we're really at a new era in that. And people have to be thinking about this new era and not extrapolating, again, past behavior and what's going on in the future. So I really do believe we are in two major, major shifts, the end of China's globalization and the start of real sustainability. And that has to influence how people think about it. And when you take new information in, you have to parse it given that view rather than relying on how the world behaved in the last 10 or 20 years. So that's probably my surprise is that the world has changed in two ways, and we're not good at taking that into account typically. Peter, that's great. I appreciate that. I would say very, very briefly, are we going to see the definition of our military readiness through the filter, increasingly a tighter filter of sustainability um, and social issues? And we need to we need to realize that U.S. military might allows the United States to have some incredible influence around the globe. The other elements of power are absolutely preconditions for the application of military force. And if they fail, then, you know, if if, if you're going to cut the military budget or I'm sorry, if you're going to cut the diplomatic budget, for example, if you're going to cut the ability to um, engage economically and make it difficult for our markets to engage, then you better pay the Department of Defense a heck of a lot of money because they're going to be engaged in places that they haven't thought about yet. So how do you maintain the level of U.S. military? How do you view U.S. military readiness through that filter of readiness to ensure that we are capable as we have been and we need to be going forward in the future? And there are social issues, sustainability issues, 
that will drive decisions that would negatively affect that level of readiness. I'm concerned about that, and we need to watch it very, very closely. Um, and then in a very specific geographic area, I think the United States relationship with India um, needs to solidify and grow in a way that'll, that's, that's a pivotal relationship that we need to have. World's largest democracy, the United States is the second largest democracy, and then you got Indonesia. But our relationship with India has got to be solidified. We can continue to work through other partnerships and relationships. I don't think we've defined our relationship with India well. Um, and it needs to it needs to achieve that level of visibility and clarity as we go forward in 2022. It needs to be a start to Peter's point of kind of an of an inflection point in terms of how we're pivoting. I have to say, I had a vote in this surprises for 2022. I'm fully on board with Peter anticipating China doing some sort of provocative action that to test the waters, to claim some territory, to seize some sort of opportunity. I don't see why they would, China in their view, would see any detriment to seizing some their continued momentum. There hasn't been a lot of pushback. I, I'm right there with Peter and his earlier comments. I, I think that even around the Olympics, I could see something happening and it's kind of being a doubling down. Not necessarily Taiwan, but something on a smaller scale. No, that's you know that's a that's a really good point. Um, and Peter and I, we've all talked about this before, right? Um, we view most of the challenges that we've chatted about we viewed as global or international in complexion beyond our borders. It requires our influence to affect something internationally. China views these as domestic issues. It's within their right to resolve this Taiwan problem. It's within their right to continue to expand in Southeast Asia, this, the seizure of additional islands and the militarization of those, uh, the engagement beyond Southeast Asia. Right? You know, you, we've seen them engaging in Africa in a number of different ways. Peter's very clear statements about rare earth minerals and the competition for those. Those are all domestic to China. Thank you, General Marks, Peter, Rachel, for your contributions to this conversation. And thank you to our listeners for taking the time. If you have an interest in connecting with our geopolitical or macro strategy team directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. Thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon.